Father, we do thank you for Christ, our King, our Lord, the Sovereign. Father, we do pray that now as we look at your word, that you will open the eyes of our heart. We need you, Father. Please, God, work in us. Show us your glory that we might know you better and that we might stand with you against the power of the evil one. You are stronger. You are mighty. You deserve all of our worship. We want to honor you. We commit this time to you. We ask, teach us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, take your Bibles and turn. Oh, I guess you're already there. <laughs> Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Tonight, today, we're going to look at two main kingdoms of the world. And these two main kingdoms are not the United States and China. We look at our world and, and think empires are formed by borders and ethnic groups and national powers. While this is true to a degree in what we see, there is a bigger picture that is not always as clear to see, but is definitely a reality. There really are two kingdoms and two main kings. Not three kingdoms and three kings or countless kingdoms and countless kings. Two kingdoms and two kings. There is the kingdom run by King Jesus and the kingdom of the world run by Satan. King Jesus is the ultimate sovereign ruler over the other king. But both have their kingdoms. In our passage today, we're going to see that often the world is absolutely clueless to who is really running things. The world does not realize who is the true king. They don't realize who is the real sovereign over all. Often, everything the world thinks, the opposite is true. Good is called evil. Evil is called good by the world. But even though the world totally misses the truth, King Jesus is still the true one King of kings and Lord of lords. And the truth, and this great truth, of the person and work of Jesus that Scripture reveals to us will one day be acknowledged by everybody. Whether the world does it right now or not, Jesus will be acknowledged as the king one day. My prayer today is, is that while we go through this passage, you will recognize Jesus is the one true, powerful, sovereign king and commit to him before you face judgment day. There are only two kingdoms to be a part of, Christ's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. We are either with Jesus or against Jesus. My prayer is, is that if you already know Jesus as your Lord and King, you will be challenged to honor him more and to live in light of this battle, recognizing that you are in this battle between two kingdoms. We should live like his subject, honoring him, worshiping our King. Today, we're going to see Jesus defends his status as the divine king with four convincing reasons to follow him. In this passage, we see he defends his status as divine king with four convincing reasons to follow him. Before we look at these four convincing reasons to submit to him, let's look at the background and the setting for this passage. Notice the setting. Another miracle is accomplished. You look in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, we see these words. And we get the concept or the idea of a miracle. And he was casting out a demon. 
and it was mute. So we're in the midst of another miracle is accomplished by Jesus. This record of a miracle by Luke is uncharacteristically brief. It's short. Luke gives only a few details for the miracle. There are three elements that are given of the miracle, the need, the rescue, and the reaction, and verse 14. But then the focus is on Jesus' response to the charge that the onlookers give that Jesus did this by the power of Beelzebul. Before we look at this charge, though, let's look briefly at this miracle. First, there's the need. And he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. Again, Jesus casts out another demon in this miracle. We've seen throughout Luke, Jesus has shown repeatedly that he has authority and power over the demonic world. Not only had Jesus cast out demons, but he had shared his authority with his disciples. Remember? That they go out and cast out demons. And as we saw in Luke chapter 4 verse 41, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The idea here is, is that this is not just a beginning new thing. He was doing it everywhere he went. People were demonically possessed and Jesus was delivering them. Here in Luke 11 is another demonstration of Jesus' great authority and power over the evil world. This time, the demon is described as mute. The term mute was often used of deaf people during Jesus' day. No deaf were ever taught to speak, so they were first recognized by not speaking. But notice it was the demon, you look, he was, cast, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. That's talking about the demon. The demon was mute. Therefore, most likely the demon was deaf and mute. The demon in turn probably made the man deaf and mute, so he couldn't hear. Most of the demons, Jesus cast it out, spoke. So, through their host, right? Remember this? They've often said, you are the Son of God. They made those comments. But this one couldn't speak. This actually made the accusation that came after it a lot easier. Because even the demons were acknowledging Jesus' kingship and lordship. But this demon couldn't speak. Remember, often demons would proclaim that out of fear of Jesus, or what are you going to do to me? But the, this one couldn't say anything. So it's set for a perfect accusation from the Pharisees or those that were there making this accusation. But notice the rescue. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. So in other words, he began to speak too. Obviously, this is a miracle. I find it interesting the deaf and mute demon appears to have made the man unable to speak, but when the man was delivered, he spoke. This gives us a hint into what it meant to be delivered from a demon possession or being delivered from this demonic influence. When Jesus delivered them, there was a dramatic shift, a change. They were changed. They were delivered. The man was freed from the bondage of not being able to speak, to now he could speak. Again, it is a miracle that happens here. And the response is obvious. Look, the crowds were amazed. The crowds didn't sit. As a whole, the crowd said, something's happened. This guy couldn't talk, and now he can talk. This is a true, genuine miracle. There was no doubt that Jesus had done one. A man who could not speak because a demon had possessed him, was now able to speak. This was obviously a miracle, and the crowd marveled. Wow! This, too, was a common reaction, right? We've seen this throughout Luke. In Luke 5, 9, Luke 5, 26, Luke 7, 16, Luke 8, 25, the crowd's always going, wow! Somebody is delivered from a demon, and they marvel. They get it. It wasn't... 
up for debate, really, from the crowd. Most of them knew something big happened. The crowd's continuous reaction, though, was of wonder and stuff, was causing a huge problem to arise in the Jewish leaders. I mean, what are we going to do with this man? <laughs> He's doing miracles, and the crowds are going crazy. They're marveling at this man. The religious elites of Judaism at that time had a problem with this. And I, I think, you know, when we study this passage, some might say, well, this is a parallel passage with Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 3. And some might take that, but personally, I don't think so. I think this is a common occurrence. These, this thing happened again and again. In Matthew 12 and Mark 3... If you look at those accounts, both of them were done when Jesus was in the Galilean region up in the north. But it appears that these are done when he's in the Judean region down in the south, this miracle. And that miracle in Mark 3 talks about the demon being blind and mute and deaf. But this one just talks about him being deaf. I think the fact of the matter is is that the religious elite came up with a plan. How can we discredit this miracle worker? How can we get him to shut up and the crowds to not follow him? What can we say that might get people to be leery of who he is? And we see this in the criticism. Look at verses 15 and 16. The criticism rises. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. If you notice in the Mark 3 account, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So what's happened is, the religious elite of Jerusalem the scribes, the law keepers, have said, wait a second. How are we going to make this guy go away? The crowds are going crazy. They're accepting that these are true, genuine miracles. What are we going to do? We've got to propagate a lie. Well, they might not have said it's a lie, but in their own corrupted hearts, they came up with what they thought was the answer. During Jesus' ministry, he was probably casting out Hundreds, if not thousands, of demons. This was news everywhere, right? It would spread. The news, Jesus' miracles spread everywhere, especially to the seat of power for Judaism in Jerusalem. And so the religious elites, as Matthew 12 and Mark 3 talk about, they come up with an answer. Jesus was trouble for the religious elites. He was doing the impossible. He was delivering people who were in total bondage to evil. The crowds were looking to him as their Messiah. This was a threat to their power in Jerusalem. And they had to come up with an answer. So the experts in the law, the scribes, say, and this became the party line, Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. There is such a twisted bit of irony here. Think about this. The religious people. What's the word religion mean? The religious people. The leaders of the religion, right? We're attributing the great grace of God and the demonstration of God's power to Satan. They were saying the one that delivers thousands of people is doing it by Satan. And they were doing it to protect themselves and malign the true God-man, Jesus. The ones who were known as the spiritual advisors were actually giving the credit of the miracles to Satan. Scary. They were calling righteousness evil. Interesting. So the religious were wicked, and they claimed the righteous one was wicked. 
This reveals so much about our hearts apart from God's grace. Humanity calls wickedness righteousness, and it calls righteousness wickedness. That's what our hearts are born to do. Our hearts are born to call what is good evil, and what is evil good. We must realize this is the world's propensity. This is the bent of the human heart apart from God. Apart from God's work in our hearts, we will say wickedness is good and good is wickedness. We need God, every one of us in this room. And even as believers, we can fall back into this twisted thinking if we do not remain focused on our king and dependent upon him. Our desire to be discerning, listen closely, this would be the application, can turn into pride that leads to criticism that then calls righteousness evil and evil righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees' explanation arose from their prideful heart. Why did they attribute these miracles to the power of Satan? It's their own pride. Their own wicked hearts. This title, Beelzebul, was a title given to Satan by the Jews years before. The title meant literally, Lord of the Flies. This was a title the Jews had come up with to mock Satan. And ultimately to mock the pagan pagan god Baal. And they had attributed this title to Satan who was behind the pagan false gods. So the Jews, in effect, said, Satan is obviously behind these pagan gods, so we're going to call him Beelzebul, the Lord of the Flies. Some even say that this title means Lord of the Dung. You get the gist, right? Like like I said, it was all to mock Satan, okay? It was originally, the title was originally established to mock Satan, But now, years later, who are they mocking? It's turned around. They're literally saying Jesus is being led by Satan, the Lord of the flies. They are saying Jesus is being led by Satan. And this wasn't the only negative reaction. Notice, the skepticism rises too. There's not only criticism, but there's skepticism. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Others, folks, sought more proof. They wanted something bigger so they would believe. They were not satisfied with this supernatural miracle. But as we all know, no amount of proof can be can convert a person, right? I can give you thousands of miracles, and that's not going to convert you. There's really only one miracle that can convert a person. Listen closely. One miracle can convert a person. You ready for it? Rebirth. God has to give you a new heart. That's the only way you're going to be converted. He has to do the transformational work in you. These skeptics were saying, in effect, I need more proof. Again, over and over here, we see the heart of mankind is wicked beyond comprehension. Miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet some say, I need more. (laughs) This, again, is another display of pride, isn't it? Another display. I'm unwilling to submit to King Jesus unless you make it more clear that you are really the king. Again, this is the heart of unbelief, filled with pride and filled with self-exaltation. Again, even believers can fall into this trap, folks, and become skeptics. Even you in here, even me. We need to evaluate our hearts when we start to become hypercritical and hyperskeptical of things. Is our reason for discernment so we can serve our king better? Or are we critics because we don't want to listen and apply God's word to our heart? That's a big difference. The skeptic says, give me more proof, and then I'll do it. Did you get that? Be careful of being a skeptic. These ones that were wanting a bigger miracle were saying, in effect, 
If I accept these true miracles from God, then I need to submit my life to him, this God-man. They didn't want to do that. So they said, give me more proof. Be careful, ladies and gentlemen, of being a skeptic just for the sake of exalting yourself or permissing your, giving yourself permission to do sin or allow yourself to continue in a wicked way. I'm not saying don't check what I'm saying. Please do that. But do it with the purpose of what? Knowing scripture and serving your king better. But if you're doing it just to excuse your lifestyle, that's a problem. Does everybody understand that? On top of this prideful rejection of Jesus, God-given miracles are attributed to God's chief enemy, as we saw. So Satan is given glory for God's miracle, and God's miracles are rejected as not big enough. Give me something bigger. How wicked are we apart from God's grace? I, 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 I want to get this across. I cannot say this enough. How often do we read scripture and do this? Those people are so wicked. I can't believe they do that. We are so prone to go through the Bible. And we look at how many of you have read the first five books of the Bible. And you look at Israel and you go, what are they doing? God just delivered them out of Egypt. Miracles. Bread is coming from heaven. What are they doing? Complain, complain, complain. Careful that's your heart apart from God's grace. You are the one that stands up and says, give me more proof. You are that person. You are that one that credits righteousness and makes righteousness evil and evil good if you're not careful for your own glory. Jesus was facing this kind of unrestrained wickedness continuously that party line was hitting him everywhere he turned the large majority of the people came and they saw and they marveled but then the leaders would give them this lie two or three lies to try to distract them the leaders of his own people were saying jesus was satan empowered he was raising the dead healing the sick, walking on water, feeding thousands, casting out hundreds of demons, delivering people. And all of this was not enough for them. In fact, they hated him for it. I, I have to confess, I, I got to look at this. This is out of the norm for me. But look over at John chapter 11. This passage just is shocking to me. Just absolutely shocking. Y'all know the story of John chapter 11, right? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? After, after it had been uh, uh, four days, five days, and he raises him from the dead. I, I love that little phrase, he stinketh, right? <laughs> no, don't do that. He must stink. <laughs> and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Look at verse 47. It's just it's startling. <laughs> Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And look, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Their, their logic went so backwards. First, it went to, it's not real. Give me more proof. Then it went to, he's got to be doing it by Satan's power. And it leads to, we got to kill this guy. He's got to die. After miracle, after miracle. It's just crazy, isn't it? How many of you? Crazy, right? That's your heart. 
Why do I know that it is by grace alone that I am saved? Because that's who I am apart from God's grace. That's who you are apart from God's grace. You would do the same thing. Why do our hymns, some of them talk about, I hear my own voice say, crucify him. That is our hearts. That is who we are. That is who you are apart from God's grace. I promise you. This is how wicked we are. We are ugly, wicked people apart from God's grace. Folks, it's no different today. It's no different. Who do the false religions say they follow? They say they follow the one true God. (laughs) But in fact, they do what? They follow the false God, Satan. And they call the true God, the triune trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they call him a false God. Or they do like the atheists, and they say what? I have to have more proof. I'd never believe unless I see it. Right? Which is exactly what happened to Jesus. It's the same thing. The heart of man is wicked. Uh, We're fools (laughs) apart from God's grace. As Psalm 14.1 states very clearly, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Boy, seeker-sensitive message today, huh? So what did, what did we come down? You are a wicked person. Apart from God's grace, that is who you are. You will reject him. You will not submit to him. And you will say, give me more proof. I need to see reasons for this. So how does Jesus respond to it? How does Jesus respond to it? And this is the bulk of the message. How does he respond to it? Well, I don't know about you. I I loved how MacArthur put it. It was really interesting. He could have just killed them, wiped them out right there. I don't know about you. I mean, he just, all that he did, the miracle he did was just attributed to his arch enemy. (laughs) What could he have done? And what did, would he have all the rights to do? Zap, you're dead. No more breathing for you. Fire, boom, dead, done. Had all the right to, right? I mean, they just blasphemed him. He's the God of the universe, the creator of the universe. And he just gave the glory of the miracle to his enemy. By the way, how many of us would react that way too? Just real quick. When we do something good and somebody gives the credit to somebody else, we go, Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 you got that backwards. Or we get angry. How does Jesus respond? He responds with grace and mercy. Wow, look at this. He gave them a defense of his person and work. They definitely did not deserve his grace, did they? They deserved his judgment for robbing God of his glory. And second, they deserved immediate hell. But instead, Jesus gives them a defense of himself. Jesus, instead of judgment, gives mercy, not what they deserve, and grace, unmerited favor, by warning them and giving them a defense, which brings us to our four convincing reasons to follow Jesus as Christ, the divine king. Let's look. As we look at each of these reasons... All of us should be persuaded to submit our lives to him as the holy king. Notice first, Jesus is the divine king to follow because he is omniscient. Omniscient. The word omniscient means all-knowing. Verse 17, we see it. It literally says, but he knew their thoughts and said to them. Now, this is very important. We almost could rush over this little phrase, but what was the last thing that was claimed? Give us a sign from heaven. 
And the first thing he did was gave them a sign from heaven. He read their thoughts and told them what they were thinking and addressed what they were thinking. This is a sign from heaven, by the way. Anybody in here omniscient? No. No, you're not all-knowing. Only God is. Jesus is the God-man. He knew their thoughts, and he addressed it. The irony is Jesus gave them what they wanted, a display of his deity right away. He gave them a display. He gave them a sign from heaven, knowing what they were thinking. He spoke to their hearts. Again, Jesus was the God-man. At the incarnation, when the Father permitted, permitted the Son in his humanity, Jesus was able to use his divine attribute of omniscience. Now, we're not going to get into that. Y'all can go and deal with that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, you'll have fun with that. But he was omniscient, but he was also man. This is a sign from heaven. He knew their thoughts and responded. Next we see Jesus is the divine king to follow because he is against evil. We see this in verses 17 to 18. He begins to tell a story, kind of, a short story. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Jesus explains, I, in effect, he says, I can't be casting out demons by the ruler of demons because Satan would be destroying his own kingdom. That's the gist of it. Jesus says here, in effect, if I were being empowered by Satan to deliver these people from the control of Satan's demons, then Satan would be hurting his own cause. Jesus says, in effect, this is just common knowledge. A kingdom that battles itself falls. That makes sense, doesn't it? Civil war causes what? The kingdom to fall apart. I can't be empowered by Satan because I'd be hurting my own cause. It makes no sense. I'm delivering people from their bondage and from these evil forces. Jesus says, real simple, this is not logical for you to say, I'm empowered by Satan to deliver people from demons' control. Satan wants them to be controlled. Why would Satan cause them to not be controlled by the demons? Makes no sense. If I'm doing Satan's work, why would I cast his demons out of people? His question implies something here. The kingdom will fall if Satan's kingdom is divided against itself. Satan is never about destroying his own rulership. He's always about exalting himself. But Jesus was all about destroying the reign of Satan in people's lives. By the way, as Jesus stated to the disciples, if people claim this about him, Matthew 10, 25, they will also claim this and treat them bad also. Folks, this is so true about our world even today. I find it so interesting how the world system often calls the true followers evil. That is all the time happening. During the Reformation, the Inquisitions were based on this. Casting the, they would call the Reformers heretics and burn them at the stake. You are evil. But the Reformers were actually good. Same thing. They would burn at the stake people who really follow Jesus. It is the same ploy. Even this week, we saw in Iran a follower of Jesus, right? Was sentenced to death. Why? Because he turned to Christ. What's the deal? Again, it's evil calling good evil. <laughs> and evil good. Backwards thinking. And I want to warn you. You can still fall into this trap. You watch the world and you will buy into the lies of the world. 
If you're absorbed with the world, you will think that what's good is evil and what's evil is good. You will do it. Everybody in here is prone to it, including myself. Yet Jesus says, Satan would not go against himself. So I'm not doing this by Satan's power. Third reason. Jesus is the divine kingdom because he is doing what is right. Verse 18 to 19. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judge. Jesus explains here. He can't be empowered by Beelzebub because he is doing what other true Jewish followers of God do when they cast out demons. He is doing what is right. And it will be, be, be revealed one day is what he implies by the so they will be judges. They will be your judges. So who are the your sons in this little passage that Jesus refers to? I think it is other Jews who had, by the power of God, cast out demons during Jesus' day. Remember what we found. I think, in fact, that the disciples were probably who he's talking about, the your sons. Why? Because he had given them authority in his name to do the same thing. And a matter of fact, remember the disciple John's, what, what he came with a question to Jesus, remember? Back in Luke 9, he said, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Remember, Jesus rebuked him. said, Don't. He's on our side. Remember? So their own sons, their own people, knew that Jesus was the authority, and he was casting out demons. Look, you skeptics, you critics... What are you doing? This is obvious. It's not just me. It's your own people that are following me and know me. They're doing it. And they will be your judge. Because you reject me, but by their actions, they show that what they are doing is true. And that I am the king. And that will be your final judgment. Jesus says in effect... These men's miracles will be the final judgment on the rest of the religious elites that reject me. Jesus' own disciples were Jews, and they had received the Messiah, and they were now doing what he was doing by his authority. As Luke chapter 10 states, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subjected to us in your name. In effect, Jesus says, it is not just me who is storming the camp of Satan and delivering people from their evil control. Others are doing it by the authority granted me. They are accomplishing by my grace great deliverance for people. Others who have rightly attributed the miracles to me do what I do and thus guarantee your condemnation. What is the great cry from the skeptic? What is the great cry of the critic of the church today? It's hypocrisy, right? Isn't that the great cry? Many of them. You hypocrites! You say, you believe, yet you're no different. But the fact is, many, many, many People have embraced Jesus and they are different. Genuine followers of Christ are different. We live by the power of Christ in us. Yes, there's tears. But the genuine believer demonstrates the power of God in them. This is a fact. And by doing this, we demonstrate that Jesus is Lord and they deserve judgment. <laughs> Same way as what happened. Fourth and finally, Jesus is the divine king to follow because he works by the power of God. 
verses 20 to 22. But if it was by the finger of God that I cast out demons, this is just a powerful statement, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Now, again, I want you to note that Jesus is being merciful by giving these defenses. Again, by saying these things, he is being overly merciful and gracious to these people. Though they blasphemed him, he is still warning them. He's still telling them the truth. Do they repent? doesn't appear to be that way. Now, Jesus calls the skeptics and the critics. Do you realize, he says to them, do you realize the magnitude of what this means if I am doing it by God? Do you really realize what this means if I am doing this by the power of God and not by Satan like you say? Jesus, after showing what they thought their thoughts were and calling them to rethink the possibility of what is really true about him, says, if I am doing these great miracles of deliverance by the finger of God, the power of God, God's king is here. God is in your midst. The finger of God here is a huge one. Anthropomorphism. <laughs> A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. Woo! Anthropomorphism. The idea is, is to attribute an aspect of God's character to man, to a, 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 the finger of God. The idea is to show, and it talks about, the power of God. It's God's attribute to accomplish these miracles is related to the finger of God. Finger is used to reflect God's active power in this miracle. If I did this miracle by, Jesus is saying, if I did this miracle by, the, by God's active power, then God's king is here. What this is, is he begins to call them to turn to him. Then Jesus explains just what he's doing when he casts out demons. Notice, he uses a story and he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Who's the strong man? Who's he relating the strong man to? Satan. When a strong man, Satan, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. What is the armor of Satan, in effect, for this story? The demons. The demons are the ones that are his protection and the ones that carry out his evil ways. They guard his people by possessing them. It's very interesting here. And he's got them. Satan's got those people that are possessed. They're his people. Remember our, 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 our lady, Mary Magdalene, seven demons, right? Under the control of demons, Satan's own. But when he casts out the demons, who does she become? His. And this is what he's saying. But when one stronger, who is that? Him. Then he... When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, gets rid of the demon, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil, takes Satan's spoil. Who's the spoil? The people. Listen, when Jesus delivered these people, what was he doing? He was taking people from the army of Satan and taking them into his camp. They're mine. They're my people. I'm stronger than Satan. When I go in and do this, 
I'm delivering people because he's King Jesus and he's stronger than Satan. But when one stronger than he attacks, Jesus is picturing his own strength. He overcomes him. He takes away his armor. He divides his spoil. Jesus is speaking of the great joy of seeing people delivered from Satan's bondage. What is Jesus saying here, in effect? I'm the king from God. I'm the king from God. I'm destroying the evil one's stranglehold on people. I'm overpowering the evil one. I'm loosing their chains of sin and bondage. Folks, our king reigns and rules and delivers. He is God. He is your hope. He's not just another man. Jesus gives an invitation here in the conclusion. I want you to notice. Jesus calls them to evaluate whose side are you on. He says to them, whose side are you on? Look at verse 23. Powerful. And again, it's just a wonderful truth. What does he do? Okay. These guys say the most wicked, wretched things. They accuse God. They rob God's glory. And they attribute it to Satan. And they accuse Jesus of being led by Satan. And what does Jesus do? He gives a defense of who he is. And then he does what? He calls them to evaluate whose side are they really on. Look at your heart. This is an invitation, by the way. An amazing invitation by Jesus. He says what? Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Who are you with? Whose side are you on? If I'm with God... And I am his king, after great logic, clearly speaking it. And you are saying that I am actually led by Satan, but I'm not. I'm really of God. What does that say about you? What does that say about your own heart? (laughs) What does that say about what kingdom you're a part of? What's he trying to get them to do? Evaluate their heart. Look at your heart. Who's your king? Who's your real king? (laughs) You say God is your king, but you just attributed God's Messiah to Satan's power. You're in the wrong camp. Pride will make us do this, guys. Sin will make us Say, evil is good and good is evil. Sin will cause us to camp with the enemy and say, I'm with him. When in fact, Satan is behind all of this. You know, there's something very strange about this. And and I'm still thinking on this, but I want you to think about the story for a second. Who is really behind who in the story? God is really behind Jesus, right? But look what Satan is doing through these religious elites. Satan has got them so twisted up that they see everything backwards. And they claim the miracles and give credit to Satan. I am... I marvel at how wicked our world is. I marvel at how wicked our hearts are. Again, I've said this before, but one of my professors just nailed it. We are so sinful, we do not realize how sinful we are. We are so wicked, we just don't realize how wicked we are. Often the very things that we make a strong stand on The strongest things we stand on are often the very things we shouldn't be standing on. And the opposite 
the things we should be firm, standing firm for, we wimp out. Say, oh, that's not that important. We are so wicked. We need God's grace so much. We can't even see how much we need God's grace. Who's your king? Who is your king? Cry out to the king that delivers. It is only Jesus that's going to allow you. Only Jesus that's going to work in you to serve him right. Total dependence upon him. Remember the prayer. Look back. Luke chapter 11. Verse 4. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Father, dependent upon you. That's my hope. We're going to sing, Oh, Worship the King, because it's one of my favorite hymns. We're changing things up a little bit. But before we sing, I'd like to I'd like to pray with you. I'd like you to take some time. Ask God. Show me where I am standing on the wrong things. Standing with the evil one when I should be standing with you. Show me those. Forgive me of those. And help me, Father, to stand with the king. You go ahead and pray. Father, we need you. We are desperately needy people. We want to worship the king. We want to worship you alone. Oh, God, help us. We want to stand with you. Prone to wonder, prone to stray, as, as the hymn writer says, God, we need you. Thank you for delivering us from the bondage of hell and sin. Thank you, God, for giving us hearts that love you and want to serve you. You delivered us, God. You are our king. You deserve all of our worship. Thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for King Jesus. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name.